It's a dry heat is an Arizona cliche for a reason. The weather has hit triple digits with famously low humidity here in Arizona, and there is no sign of cooling down anytime soon. But it's become more than that. As the heat continues, there are wildfires raging in all different parts of the state, and Coconino National Forest has shut down. Lakes have hit dangerously low levels, and worst of all, there's no rain in sight. But it's a desert, right? It's typically hot with not a lot of rain. Yes, but the water crisis in Arizona is reaching a dire point. Since the turn of the century, Arizona and the West have been in one of the biggest mega droughts of the last 1200 years, and it's being revved up by human-caused heating all over the planet. So what can be done, and how bad is it really? This is The Gaggle, a podcast by the Arizona Republic and azcentral.com. I'm your host, Yvonne Winget Sanchez, with Ron Hansen. To help us understand the depth of this crisis, we talked with Kathy Jacobs. Jacobs is the director of the Center for Climate Adaptation Science and Solutions at the University of Arizona. Her research focuses on water policy, climate change adaptation, and drought planning, among others. When the gaggle asked her how well she thinks this crisis is being handled, she said, You know, I, I think we've underestimated the risk, frankly. Kathy, thanks for joining us on The Gaggle. We are in the grips of one of the hottest spells in memory, which, as you know, is really saying something for Phoenix. Water levels are dangerously low in Lake Mead, and Governor Doug Ducey has called the wildfires this year, once again, catastrophic. How interconnected do you see these problems? There's an absolute connection between drought and fire and climate change, um, these are linked. So when you get hotter temperatures, it gets drier. And of course, the lack of precipitation has a huge amount to do with what's going on out there. We think of this as uh, sort of, we compare this year to last year, or how things feel different from a decade ago. What are some of the more scientific indicators you're looking at to give people a sense of how our climate is changing here in Arizona? Well, it's easy to think of this as sort of we've gone off a cliff and we are in a completely new um, climate. But the reality is, um, you know, there have been very hot and dry years in the past. What we do see, though, in the scientific uh, literature and, of course, the data that are collected every day is that we are going beyond historical precedents now and things are getting much hotter and drier than they have been, uh, at least in recent memory. So we have seen in the past, you know, long periods of mega droughts, um, including centuries ago, but we are really entering this period very rapidly. And it is, of course, now that we have a whole civilization uh, dependent on this, it's a very different situation. On that point, I think people hear phrases like mega drought or, you know, generational sorts of periods where we've experienced extreme bouts of weather. But from a very practical standpoint and sense, 
what does that mean to everyday Arizonans who are just sort of going about their lives, making the, you know, commute to and from East Mesa or Gilbert or Avondale into downtown every day? They're filling their um, pools with water. Water still comes from the tap when they turn it on to, you know, make dinner every night. How do you get people to really engage on an issue that they really don't seem to connect with in a day-to-day sense? That is actually one of the dangers of our current lifestyle, that we are very connected, disconnected from things like water supply and the natural world. People who don't go out hiking and don't actually go look at reservoirs um, may not have any idea what's going on. But then when you see wildfires and smoke in the air, I think that does start to catch people's attention. But you're right. Every time you turn the tap, the water comes on. It makes you think that um, everything's under control. When in fact, we actually are in a relatively um, difficult situation right now. And I actually worry at least as much about the natural world as I do about the cities and the farmers and so forth. Uh, Honestly, we have a lot of options available to us um, because we have so much infrastructure and we have so many arrangements that we've made, including recharging groundwater. But think about all the, the, you know, the fish and the birds and the trees and the saguaros. I mean, Arizona's landscapes are shriveling and burning, and we may lose a lot of species. Last week, Governor Ducey signed into law a plan to commit $100 million to help with fire mitigation and fire suppression efforts around the state. Um, That sounds like a lot of resources. Is that the kind of action it's going to take to reduce the wildfire hazards in Arizona? Does this really move the needle? Well, honestly, I think we need a much bigger effort uh, to deal with climate change generally and an acknowledgement that we are in a what they call a new normal. We are not in a situation where we have a short-term drought and the fire season's going to go back to normal soon. Um, we're, we're going to be dealing with these issues essentially from now on. There'll be variability and there'll be wet years, but we do need to start thinking about these issues in terms of risk management. How can we build for the state of Arizona a more robust future that basically acknowledges what it is that's going on now. And up until now, there's been a lot of reluctance to talk about this in terms of climate change and to think about it in terms of managing systems instead of just throwing money at firefighting. So yes, it's important to have resources available um, to thin forests and to do backburns and to actually fight the fires themselves. Well, I think we need to think about land management more broadly, and we need to think about water supply in a more holistic sense. And we need to think about, you know, what are the expectations in terms of risk that people are willing um, to deal with? And um, there are certainly some communities in Arizona that are at more risk than others, in part because they live at the urban wildlife, wildfire interface. You know, there's a wildland interface where fire risk is much greater. And we now see, for example, pine and strawberry in a pretty difficult situation. So 
you don't live day to day in the political bubble, God bless you, like the rest of us, but you are in the the policy arena. And so you are very directly seeing the consequences of the decisions made by elected officials and others. Why do you think that there has been such a reluctance to try to address these issues on a more holistic, meaningful front? I mean, you know, it seems to me, yeah, when there's, you know, the air is really bad outside and Arizona is on fire, we will see action. When hot shots, 19 of them die um, because of a fire, we will get action from state leaders, the vice president will come to town, but day in, day out, they are not making the kind of policy decisions that need to be made to sustain the future for our children, our grandchildren. What is the reluctance? You know, it's a really great question. Why it is that uh, politicians won't acknowledge what's going on here? Because honestly, leadership is about anticipating future conditions and it's about protecting the public from things they may not be able to see themselves. I don't understand why this has become so political, um, but I think the main reason is that people feel that um, government itself is a bad thing, um, when in fact we all expect government to protect us from all of these risks. So if we're not going to protect ourselves, we need to enable our the government to do it and to not not be so reluctant as citizens to support legislators who are willing to take a strong stand that might cost money um, and that we need to look at it as an investment instead of thinking about it as a tax. You know, everyone's so concerned about, you know, whether or not small changes in in taxation are going to um, sort of limit, you know, their ability to buy whatever it is from Amazon. But the reality is the future of our state and for future generations and for wildlife, all of these things are at stake now. We can't deal with these issues 10 years down the road, 20 years down the road. We need to deal with them now. And the longer we wait, the more difficult it's going to be. I'm not a politician. I don't want to be a politician. And so I can't really answer to you why it is that when the facts are so clear, it's so difficult to make a move. Uh, I find it very frustrating. One of the more tangible signs of our climate and our ability to manage our lives here in the desert uh, is water. Um, Give us a sense of our long-term outlook uh, for our water consumption and our water supply? How how do those things interact? Well, I've been working on water management issues for a long time in Arizona, since 1981, actually. And I do think that we've done a pretty amazing job of groundwater management in the major urban areas. But a lot of our success really depends on the Central Arizona Project and on use of municipal effluent. If you think about the state as a whole, it's a much more scary story because we have not made those same investments in all of the rural counties. Um, So we've really advantaged um, the urban areas to a great degree. And I do think we've shown amazing capacity 
um, both to cooperate uh, of, across these various municipal areas and to work with the Central Arizona Project, the Salt River Project, and the Bureau of Reclamation to really enhance the security of our water supplies. And so we're okay in the next, you know, decades, but I really can't say what the likelihood is of a secure water supply past, say, 2050. Um, and I'm particularly concerned about all of the areas that are outside of active management areas that have almost no management scheme and no legislative tools at their, you know, before them. A lot of people think, again, that the, that the government is bad and, you know, laws that might restrict access to water supplies for new users are bad. The reality is they're actually good for the economy. They stabilize the economy. They help protect, you know, wildlife and may protect lives. So what are those areas outside of the urban, Arizona's urban um, sort of centers that you were most concerned about? I mean, we read stories, for example, all the time about how water might be in very, very short supply in Pinal County, for example. Um, Are there other areas that you're particularly concerned about? Well, Pinal County is actually in one of the active management areas, but it has a different management goal than the one than the Phoenix and Tucson uh, active management areas do. Um, So I am concerned about Pinal County in part because the agricultural water supply is in more of a crisis than the municipal supply. Um, That's partly because of the choices that have been made historically by agricultural users not to sign up for Central Arizona Project contracts themselves. But I'm especially concerned about areas outside the active management areas that do not have access to the Central Arizona Project. That is sort of our lifeline. And yes, we'll have less water in it in the future than we have today. Uh, But those other parts of the state don't have a way to import water. And it doesn't seem likely that they will. So, you know, we do need to be making some investments in enhancing those rural communities, um, help perhaps its ecotourism or its other ways of helping them have a good lifestyle that's outside of irrigated agriculture, because that's there are several counties where agriculture has been just booming on, on groundwater supplies that are diminishing daily. So Arizona leaders have broadly recognized that this is a pretty dire situation, yet we don't have any of these sort of mandated water rationing or restrictions that um, you see in other parts of the country. Um, is is there something we should be doing at this point? I mean, beyond trying to get my kids to turn off the sink in between um you know, their toothbrushing <laughs> exercises in the morning, afternoon, and night. I mean, if we're not mandating it inside of our homes, I mean, what what could the government be doing to help us um, sort of prepare better? I think one thing we need to get across to people is 
you know, when we talk about a drought, we act as though it's an act of God or it is a purely natural phenomenon. But it really has to do more with our expectations of how much water we should have or normally have. And that expectation needs to change because we're going into a time when our the climate's actually going to be different. So the whole picture of, you know, how much water is available needs to be understood more broadly. And not thinking about this as a short-term phenomenon where we're temporarily not getting enough rain or it's temporarily too hot, but rather we need to think over the long term, how is it that we're building our developments? Is there a way to build um, more conservation into the both the residential component and the commercial component? Do we want to have large-scale commercial agriculture operating all the time in all places in Arizona? Or is there a way to compensate them for perhaps providing excess supplies to municipal entities during drought? I mean, there are many ways that everybody wins um, that we can get to a better outcome. But I think the biggest problem is helping people really see this as a new normal instead of a temporary emergency. Um, If we can get people to that point, then hopefully they will stop using quite so much water in their landscape or, you know, reduce, you know, not put in a new swimming pool or whatever it is. I'm not sure. In each each, uh, community, it's a different issue. But if you have a community pool, maybe you don't need, you know, an individual pool and so forth. Kathy, when you say things like new normal, it suggests that it's not a crisis. Uh, to some ears, that just sounds like an occasion to sort of shrug things off and, and adapt um, whatever it takes to get through the day. Can you give us a sense as to what anyone can do, what what localities or the state should be doing from forest management to building codes and such that from your perspective, coming from the scientific community, uh, that would actually do something to make a difference? And ultimately, is there something that states and localities can really do? Or is this more of a national or or international level problem that only at that stage can we really start to do things? Well, that's really a great question. And one that I'm very interested in is, you know, what what can institutions do and how how can government help and at what level? Um, there's no doubt that if we had more coordination at the federal level, then the states wouldn't sort of be in this situation of um, each one of them having to navigate this by themselves. Um, that being said, the water supply situation for every state is unique. That's partly because each state has regulatory power over the water supply itself. Um, So, you know, the conditions are different enough in each state that the federal government really cannot um, make decisions that help, you know, sort of at the local level. They can provide resources, they can provide coordination, they can help the, the federal agencies to be making decisions that are helpful to the local uh, folks. But this is not primarily a federal problem. I do think that states can play a much larger role than, for example, the state of Arizona has. Arizona doesn't have the kind of 
climate action plan that it should have. Um, it should have a climate action plan that deals with health and water and drought and transportation and communications. Um, there should be um, a lot larger safety net uh, for people who um, may not be able to handle the risk associated with, with all of these challenges. Um, there's lots of opportunities to make investments in you know, more robust infrastructure, in you know, managing forests, and so forth. So there's lots of options. Um, and I don't think at the state level, we've taken the kinds of initiatives that I've seen in other states where people say, yes, this is a problem. We are going to talk about this from a systems perspective. We're going to think about where's the greatest risk and how can we mitigate that risk um, and make investments in a way that um, actually limits the, the likelihood of real catastrophe. We do know that we've made a lot of investments in water supply, but as I said, it's not a fully equitable investment. It doesn't help all of the parts of the state. Uh, and you know, I, I think we've underestimated the risk, frankly. So approaching uh, a tipping point on water and certainly um, soon we'll be reaching a, a potentially irreversible tipping point with climate change. Is the Southwest operating on the same timetable as the rest of the world, or is the situation more dire here? Well, you're right um, to ask that question, because honestly, um, you know, a lot of people have said, including my, my colleague, Jonathan Overbeck, um, that we are essentially the, uh, the center of the climate change impacts um, phenomenon. But there are many that have already felt it even more dramatically. And I think if you look at places where sea level rise is already causing huge damage in association with huge coastal storms and so forth, there are other parts of the world that are changing more quickly, um, particularly in the Arctic. Um, the pace of change in the Arctic is astonishing and incredibly frightening. So, you know, yes, it is happening right in front of us in Arizona. And we are, you know, we do have the crosshairs on us. Um, and it's it's pretty dramatic, I, particularly the wildfires and the, you know, the lake levels. Both of those things we can see. But it's often the things we can't see that are more irreversible, like the loss of biodiversity. If we, if we, we lose the forests across... Arizona, or at least across the Sky Islands, it takes a lot of species with it. So, no, we are not the place where I think the pace of change is the greatest, but it's very easy to see that things are changing quickly in Arizona. Kathy, we asked you about the uh, the state's initiative here uh, with $100 million uh, on um, spending to try and manage the wildfire issue. Um, let's turn it to Washington for just a moment. Uh, 
you've heard a number of different proposals, I'm sure, uh, kicked around on Capitol Hill from things like the Green New Deal to weatherization and, and other kinds of uh, initiatives. Is there anything that you would uh, that sounds especially consequential, anything especially worthwhile from a scientific perspective that you think makes sense and would actually accomplish something that would be helpful in trying to manage this? Well, you know, honestly, I haven't heard a single proposal that is big enough that really promotes adaptation at the level that I think it needs to be pursued. In other words, an awful lot of the initiatives have focused on on jobs and on limiting carbon, carbon emissions. But I don't think there's enough effort going into managing risk associated with climate change. And if I had uh, more influence, um, I, that's something I would really try to change. There are, you know, really potentially beneficial things every time you get a an economic positive that is paired with a climate positive. So if you can limit risk and limit emissions while you're making money, that is a sort of is a perfect um, sort of combination. And that's, I think, what they're trying to accomplish with the Green New Deal. The problem is that, you know, it gets all these labels and, you know, it's people are named who are you know considered to be extremely liberal and out of the mainstream and you know honestly what we need to do is go back to basics where are we going to manage the risk where the risk is greatest how can we protect vulnerable populations of people and communities and you know various parts of the country that are extremely vulnerable right now and i don't see that there's a national resilience effort that has the kinds of resources and teeth that it needs. As someone who is such um, an expert in this field, what do you do on a day-to-day basis as an individual? Absence, you know, leadership from the top on down. What, what do you do? What tips can you offer our um, listeners who might want to, um, you know, be a little bit more mindful day in, day out on on how they use our resources. Sure. Well, um, I'll give you a list of things, but I, I don't want to set myself up as being some kind of um, perfect uh, example. You know, we do have solar panels. Um, we have an electric vehicle, so we are powering our car with you know, electricity from the solar panels. We have um, a completely desert landscape uh, outside of our back patio. We do have drip irrigation inside, but not a blade of grass. Um, I, you know, take very short showers. I don't eat very much meat. I try to keep my thermostat set at a level that, you know, limits the amount of energy we use, even though we are, um, you know, generating a it through solar. Um, we try to limit the number of trips we take and and do multi-purpose trips. We do have one car that is not an electric vehicle. Um, and so we just try to use that one less. Those are just examples. Um, but, um, you know, we do what we can. 
Very good. Thank you, uh, Kathy. Uh, you've, you've given us a checklist of things we should all be thinking about. So thank you for that. And thank you for joining us. Okay. Well, thank you. That's it for today, Gaggle listeners. Thanks again to Kathy Jacobs for talking with us. While we still have you, please don't forget to rate and review our show and share it with a friend. If you want to reach out to me on Twitter, I'm at Yvonne Winget. And I'm at Ronald J. Hansen, and that's H-A-N-S-E-N. Today's episode was edited and produced by Amanda Liberto. Thanks so much for listening to The Gaggle, a podcast from the Arizona Republic and azcentral.com. Also be sure to check out Valley 101, an Arizona Republic and AZ Central podcast that answers all your questions about the Valley. From silly to serious, you ask the questions and we find the answers. For The Gaggle, I'm Yvonne Winget Sanchez. We'll see you next week.